I want to talk with you a little bit more about evangelism this morning. So if you have your Bibles, open to Matthew chapter 9, please. I want to look at verse 35. I want to focus on a verse 35 for just a moment and talk a little bit about what Matthew says there. Chapter 9, verse 35. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. Would you say that that was a significant exercise on Jesus' part? Preaching and bringing good news and healing every disease and sickness? Significant, huh? Vital, would you say? I want to reread that passage and I want to change one word. Read with me. The church went through all the towns and villages teaching and preaching the good news of the kingdom, healing every disease and sickness. Is that legitimate? Can I do that? Some say yes, some say no. I think so. Now, here's, here's the rationale. We are the what? Body of Christ. Who was Jesus? Okay, he was, he was a man who was indwelt by the presence of God, right? He was the God-man. Emmanuel, God with us. So Jesus, a human but had a divine nature. Peter says that we are partakers of the divine nature if we are born again. So we have the same Spirit of God living in us that Jesus had living in Him. We depend on the same Spirit of God that Jesus depended on. Jesus was limited in terms of time and space. He could only minister to so many people. Do you know that He got tired? Do you know that He had to take a weekend off here and there? Do you know that he had to go away with his disciples and rest? Do you know that he needed recuperation time? He needed to go away and, and pray and be alone with his heavenly father, just like you and I? Jesus also tells us in John's gospel, he told his disciples, and, and by way of them, that we, we come to know this. He said that I'm going away, but he says, I'll not leave you alone. I will send another like me. You know him, he is with you, but he will be in you. Who was that? The Holy Spirit. He would indwell the church. He would indwell believers. And in another place, Jesus says that the works that he does, we will do also, and we will do greater works. Greater in extent, greater in number. So, if we look back at this verse... Jesus went through all the towns and villages teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, healing every disease and sickness. Do you think that the church also has a heritage? The church has the baton passed to it to do the same things? Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, in the grand scheme of things, from a human perspective, there are many, many great human endeavors, are there not? I mean, just in our own present uh, world scenario, there's a, a massive effort. Millions, and we don't know how many millions and millions of dollars are being poured into the Middle East and, and tremendous human efforts for peace and reconciliation and, and, and all the things going on around the world. And, and in, in industry, the, the tremendous efforts in research and building and industry and, and, and all these kinds of efforts... So on the grand scale of things, when you're looking just with, with human vision, temporal understanding, being part of the church doesn't seem to be so significant, does it? Well, I go to church on Sunday. But in the grand scheme of things, that seems like hardly makes any difference. And indeed, in today's society, the church is... If you ask randomly people on the street who are not believers, who don't understand 
the, the, uh, the import and the impact of the church, people will say to you, if you ask them, what, what value is the church? They say the church is no value, it's irrelevant. Doesn't matter if you go to church or not. Doesn't matter if you believe or not. That's the genuine and general tenor of our society today. But if you begin to look with heavenly vision, if you begin to look with the vision that God has, you begin to look with divine understanding rather than just temporal understanding, you begin to see things wholly different, don't you? I would suggest that there is no more vital, no more important, no more significant thing that you and I could be involved in than in the kingdom of God. Nothing. Nothing is more significant than the saving of one soul plucked as a brand from the fire, says Zechariah. Think about this. You go to heaven. You go to heaven and because of your efforts, and you're not, maybe you're not aware of it, maybe you are. You go to heaven and somebody comes up to you and says, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for what? Thank you for touching that person who touched that person who touched that person who touched that person who touched me. Thank you that because you cared enough, I'm here today. I'm in heaven. Thank you for inviting me. And I suspect that throughout eternity, we're going to be meeting people who are going to be coming up to us saying, thank you. And we're going to be going to people. We're going to be saying, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. In the scale of things, how do you view being part of the church? How do you view being a member of the body of Christ? Is it the most exciting, most significant, most vital aspect of your life? That's part of what we want to talk about this morning. There are pastors much like myself, and, and every pastor has gone through this. Every pastor goes through this. He wants to quit. Wants to hang up his preaching shoes. He's had it. He's, he's tired. He's beat up. He's worn out. Frustrated. And I've had those experiences. I'm thankful for my wife. Because my wife, when I sit down and put my thumb in my mouth and have a little pity party, she does not come and rub my tummy and say, oh, poor baby. She is bright enough, she is astute enough, she understands the process and me well enough to say, well, you want to quit? All right. What are you going to do when you quit? <laughs> we play this little game now. We've been at it for long enough. <laughs> and I say, well, I'll go clean pools. She says, sure you will. I'll go back and sell Amway again. Sure you will. She says, you know and I know that you'd be miserable. She says, woe is you if you preach not the gospel. She knows. And I'm thankful that she knows and I'm thankful that she will be so forthcoming with me. The reality is there is nothing more significant I can do with my life than to invest it in the kingdom of God. Amen. To be a member of the body of Christ, there is nothing in your life that you can do that is more significant. And it doesn't mean that you have to become vocational minister or missionary or pastor. Or anything like that. It means that whatever you do, wherever you go, you do it as unto the Lord. Because you know that somehow in his grand scheme and economy of things, it fits into his plan and purpose and you devote it to him. Lord, for your glory, I'm going to do this. For your glory, I want to do this the best. Lord, because your kingdom is first in my life and I have a part to play, I fit in God. There's nothing more significant than you and I can do. Now read the rest of the passage with me. Look at next verse, verse 36. When he saw the crowds, when Jesus saw the crowds, 
He had compassion on them because they were what? Harassed and helpless and like sheep without a shepherd. He sees the tremendous need in people's lives. He's only one person. He can't attend to all the need. It wore him out. He sees the devastation in people's lives. He sees the grief in people's lives. He sees the lostness, the confusion, the helplessness, and the hopelessness of people's lives. He looks out on the masses of people. He says, my gosh, look at the need. But he has resources at hand, doesn't he? Who are his resources? His disciples. He turns to his disciples and he says, look, the harvest is what? Meager? No, he says the harvest is plenty. Look at, look at this. People are hungry. They're starving. They're, they're, they're dying. The harvest is plentiful. Oh, but the workers are few. There's not enough of us to reach the world who are presently involved in the work. And so he says, he challenges us. He challenged his disciples then, and the challenge comes down through every generation to our present generation. He says, ask. In the Greek, it's keep asking, keep asking, keep asking. It's present continuous tense. Keep asking that the Lord of the harvest would, and here's the word he uses, thrust workers into the harvest field. Thrust them into the harvest field. The majority of workers are out there, didn't go because... They willingly went. They were thrust into the harvest field. We know what that's like, don't we? <laughs> thrust. There was something pushing, something pressing them into the harvest field. Any and every one of us who are in, in any kind of significant, substantial ministry situation, leadership situation in the church, your, our life, we were thrust into it. You don't just step up and say, oh, I'll do that. There's a pressure on your life to bring you. And so Jesus says, pray, ask, seek, God, God, thrust workers into the harvest. The most important thing we could ever be involved in. Really, really. So if we are called of God to be participating with him in the great harvest making disciples, participating in the, the Great Commission? How can we be more effective? Well, there's some things that are important to us. I talked with you about two of those things last week. I want to rehearse those quickly and then go on to the next four. There are certain strategies, certain essentials that are critical to this process of effectiveness in outreach. We said last week that if our outreach efforts are to be effective, that they begin first with what? Character, not, not compassion. We've, we've transformed, we've flipped, we've flipped the, 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 the common understanding. Most people say, well, I, uh, I have to feel compassion, don't I? Then I go, no. Effective outreach begins with character. Obedience, in effect. That you obey, you go, you do, then you'll feel. But remember, we live in a very feeling-oriented culture. You know, everyone wants to feel. You know, it's just feel. Everybody's feeling. Feelings are a third-order event. They're like the caboose on the train. They come along, they're the last thing in the process. I had a man last night after the Saturday night service, the second service, he came up to me and he said, you know, I want to tell you something. He said, last week I heard you talk about this character versus compassion thing and, and doing what's right, then the feelings will happen, and, and you use the illustration of marriage. How many remember my illustration from marriage from last week? Okay. He said to me, he said, you know what? He says, I, I, I took you up on your challenge. He said, I determined when I left church last Saturday night, he said, I determined that th this, this past week, he says, I, was, I made a decision to love my wife. Sounds kind of cold and calculating, doesn't it? 
Ladies, isn't that great that your husband decides to love you? But that's the truth of it. If you understand the scriptures, men have to be commanded to love their wives. <laughs> Dunk, the light goes on. Oh, yeah, yeah. He said, I made a decision to love my wife. And guess what? It wasn't a couple of days, but I began to feel great love for her. I said, imagine that. That's how it works. You do what's right. You follow the, the, the master's design and everything falls in place. He was waiting to feel like he loved her. I said, you're never going to love her if you wait to feel like it. You're only going to resent her and, and have problems and point out all her faults and criticize her. And you'll stand back there in self-righteousness and say, oh, if you would only change. No, I said, as soon as you make a decision, he did it. It's great. Critical. Would you agree? So if we were to be effective in our outreach, then it starts not with compassion, not with the feelings. It starts with character, doing what's right, doing what God has ordained and designed for us to do. Then the feelings will come. We said also that effective outreach realistically deals with what? What was the second thing we talked about last week? The fear issue. Fear has to be addressed, doesn't it? We can't just ignore it. We can't just pretend like we're not afraid. We can't try to sweep fear under the carpet. Fear is a natural emotion. It is always going to be with us in, in, in one degree or another. So what do we do? If we, do we let fear inhibit us in terms of outreach when we think about sharing the gospel, the good news, reaching out to somebody? If there's one thing in common that, that between Christians and non-Christians is what? Yeah, it's their nervousness over evangelism, right? I mean, you're nervous about sharing. They're nervous about hearing. So how do we deal with it? What do we do? We go to the scriptures and we see, God, do you have a strategy? Do you have a formula that I can implement in my life that will help me realistically deal with fear in my life over testimony, over giving witness, over making myself visible as a Christian? And we looked in the book of Acts, the early church, didn't we? Same scenario, same situation. Here are early believers who are fearing the threats of the establishment and they're holed up, they're in prayer, they're scared to go out and testify, they're scared to witness. Anybody relate? And in the context of that passage, those few verses in chapter 4 of the book of Acts, we see a formula, we see a strategy for realistically dealing with the fear issue. What were the four components? Does anybody remember? What was the first one? Assurance. Assurance that God sees, that God knows, and that God cares about the trouble that's facing us. Assurance. I want to know and I want to be assured the fact that God is with me in the bad times as well as the good times. And they had assurance. They said, Lord, take note of the threats. <laughs> well, that gave them confidence. What was the second component? Courage. Courage. But a courage that is what? Greater than their fear. They didn't pray, Lord, take away our fear. They said, God, give us a boldness. Give us a courage that's greater than our fear. And what was the third component? God, stretch forth your hand and do something miraculous as we go out there and talk to people. Make your presence known. Ooh, isn't that exciting? Would that embolden you if you knew God was going to meet you out there? I mean, you go out there and you call fire from heaven? That'd be cool? You command somebody to get up and walk? Would that be cool? Raise somebody from the dead? Would that embolden your testimony? I promise you, you'll still be nervous and fearful. <laughs> and the fourth component was what? Be full of the Holy Ghost. Full of the Holy Ghost. And they were full of the Holy Ghost. They had power to be His witnesses. So you might want to rehearse that passage in Acts chapter 4 for yourself. Remember, effective outreach must deal realistically with that fear issue. Otherwise, our, our, our outreach efforts are stunted. They're hindered. And God gives us a way to go. God gives us a way to deal with it. That leads me to my third strategy. Effective outreach, again, begins on the inside, not on the outside. It begins on the inside, not on the outside. Most people today, and most people throughout the history of mankind, have not been really prepared on the inside to live life on the outside. We see it all over the place. We see lives falling apart, marriages falling apart, families falling apart. 
We see people's lives devastated, harassed, helpless. People are not prepared on the inside to live life on the outside. The same thing is true of evangelism and outreach and reaching people for Christ. The church is not prepared on the inside adequately enough for the work of outreach on the outside. There are two important inside, quote, unquote, issues that we need to be aware of and we need to pay attention to. Two inside issues. The first one is prayer. The first one is prayer. Prayer, very simply, is how we respond to God's challenge. How do we respond to God's challenge? Well, we respond in prayer first and foremost. God says what? Acknowledge me in all of your ways. Don't lean on your own understanding. He says, if you'll acknowledge me in all of your ways, what does that mean? Pray about it. Get prayed up. Get prepared. He says, if you'll do that, I'll make your way straight. But if you lean on your own understanding which most of us do, we rush out, we just jump right out there without taking time to say, you know, we best pray about this. We best pray about this. We saw that in the early church. They were in that room praying. They were praying. They were praying. They received power from on high to go and do that which God had called them to do. They didn't just rush out there in their own strength, their own human capability, leaning on their own understanding. Prayer is essential inside preparation that we might be effective on the outside. And not only just with outreach, but in our life. Does that make sense? That's why you get up every morning. You say, God, today, I'm looking to you today. Lord, you give me the strength. Give me the wisdom. Direct my steps, oh God, and put a guard on my mouth. Prepare me for the day, Lord. Equip me for the day. Strengthen me for the day. Give me wisdom for the day. For your glory. See, you're acknowledging him. Not leaning on your own understanding. Vital. Prayer is absolutely critical. If you review the history of the church, the history of all of God's people, Old Testament, New Testament, from the beginning of time, you see that men and women of God were men and women of prayer. And they had a concern, a prayer burden, if you will, for the lost. You see the prayers of all the great saints revealed in scriptures from Moses clear through Jesus and Paul and John. They prayed for the lost. We must build a prayer base in our own lives individually and in our life as a congregation. That's why we have a 10 most wanted list. That's why we pass out these cards periodically. We say, write the names of the, of the 10 people in your life who you most want to see come to Christ. We pray for them every day. Pray for them every day. Have them in your Bible. So when you open your Bible every morning for your devotion time, you're praying for them. When you open your Bible in the afternoon, you're going to pray for them. When you open your Bible in the evening, you're going to pray for these people. Prayer. And in praying, you're preparing yourself for encounters, future encounters with them. You're not only just praying for them, but the effect is going to be felt in your own life also. We pass around our prayer wheel. Is the prayer wheel being passed around, by the way? Where's the prayer wheel? (laughs) Sitting on the floor? (laughs) The prayer wheel? (laughs) Michael, I'm going to start with you, okay? We have a prayer wheel. Most of you are aware of this. All the services, we pass these around. Uh, the, the, The week before the beginning of the month and the first weekend of the month, we pass these around. Why? Because we have prayer needs for the life of the church and and we want everybody in the congregation, everybody in the congregation, being one heart and one mind, praying together, moving forward and providing a strong base of prayer for the life of our church. We ask people, sign up for a 15-minute period of time. Pray for 15 minutes a day, every day, 30 days, 31 days a month. So that every single moment of every single day of every month is covered by prayer. That our congregation is praying. What an exciting concept. And in so doing, we're laying a foundation of prayer. Just those two mechanisms, the ten most wanted list, the prayer wheel. Those those don't even take into account all the other prayers that are going on in all the other meetings and fellowships and groups and individual settings. Prayer is critical for us being prepared on the inside, on the inside. 
it is vital that when we have this prayer base, as we do, continue to participate on that level, that it makes it conducive for people to come into our lives, into the life of our congregation, even come into our worship services, it makes it more conducive for people to come because why? Their path has been bathed in prayer. The door is being opened in that spiritual realm. Strongholds are being torn down. And it makes it possible not only for people to come and receive Christ, but it makes it more and more possible for them to begin to experience the very power and presence of God as they worship with us. Worship should be an exciting experience, shouldn't it? It should be a powerful experience as we sing his praises, as we exalt his holy name, as we bless him, as we sing his, his, his glorious praise. It is a good thing, the Bible says, to be in the company of God's people praising his name. And how many of us have been touched by the Lord as we've lifted our hands in praise and worship, exalted His name and humbled ourselves and surrendered to Him. And God has moved and touched us in a special way. Healed us, anointed us, comforted us. We come, just think, you come to church, you're on your way to church two, three, four days before you're anticipating getting into the service. You can hardly wait. I can hardly wait. I can hardly wait to get there. I'm going to be with God's people. We're going to be singing the praises of our God together. I can hardly wait to be there. It's exciting. When I was a new Christian and, and before I ever became a pastor, I could hardly wait to be here. I used to look forward to coming and being with God's people. I used to look forward to getting here. I would sit up in front. I raised my hands. I loved to sing God's praises. And I would weep with joy for what God was doing in our midst. As I looked around and saw all these different people, I knew He was doing great things in their lives. Now I'm here all the time. <laughs> Can't stay away. God said, I'll make it easy for you. I'll just make you pastor. You can stay here all the time. You see what I'm talking about? You see, as we pray, as we praise, there's an environment now where the very presence of God, the psalmist says the presence of God, the power of God indwells, inhabits the praises of his people. Now the second inside issue. Prayer is critical. And so isn't the second inside issue. Internal stuff. Attitude. Attitude. If prayer is is how I respond to God's challenge, then attitude is how I respond to the lost. How do I respond to the lost? Or do I? How did Jesus respond to the lost? What was Jesus' attitude toward the lost? Didn't he love them? He went on after them. He mingled with them. He spent time with them. He touched them. He reached out to them. Shouldn't that be our attitude? If we are the body of Christ now. You remember the parables that Jesus taught in Luke chapter 15? How many of you remember Luke chapter 15? The three parables. Luke 15. Anybody at all? Remember Luke 15? The lost sheep, the lost coin, and the what? The prodigal son, right? Three forms of lostness. Here's a sheep that just in its own ignorance wanders off and gets lost. The coin represents somebody who was led astray. And the son represents lostness through his own foolishness and deliberate willfulness. Nonetheless, here's lostness. Three lostness. Three forms of lostness. And what is the attitude of each one? The shepherd, the woman who seeks to find the coin, and the father who receives his son back. What's the attitude when they all three are found? Rejoicing. And Jesus says there is great rejoicing in heaven when one sinner repents. See, is that our attitude? Do we, are, we, are we zealous for the lost? Are we hungry to bring the lost into salvation? Do we rejoice when one sinner repents? What's our attitude towards the lost? And unless we are attentive to that attitude, we're praying and we're attentive to our attitude. How am I perceived by those who are lost as a Christian? Insignificant? Irrelevant, self-righteous, how am I perceived by those who are lost? Do, do we as Christians have anything to be happy about? Do we? What do we have to be happy about? 
We're saved. <laughs> to put it in one phrase, we're saved. We're saved. What is characteristic of people who are happy? What do they do? They smile. They smile a lot, right? In Paul's letter to the Colossian church, he tells the Colossian believers, he says, set your mind on things above, not on things below. Make your focus on things above, not on these things that you see. He's saying, in effect, if you'll if you keep your mind on things above, if you'll be heavenly minded, then maybe you'll be some earthly good. You think? Sure. So, for us, how am I going to be happy? By keeping my mind focused on the things that I am in possession of, the forgiveness of all of my sins, I have a no condemnation status with God, I've been adopted as His child, I have His guarantee that He will work all things together for my good, all things for my good. I am saved, I am heaven bound, I'm getting a brand new body, and on and on and on it goes. I have the hope of glory. So people say to you, you're walking down the street, you're singing, you're focusing on this thing. Man, I'm saved. Oh, I'm saved. I'm saved. Oh, I'm saved. Now people are going to encounter you and they're going to say, What's with you? What are you, nuts or something? What, what are you laughing about and giggling about all the time? All you do is, you're just happy all the time. What's the deal? I'm saved. <laughs> People say to you, how are you? You say, oh, I'm okay. Right? Isn't that generally the response we get? Oh, I'm fine. How are things? Oh, they're okay. I'm making it. We give them some kind of sick, pathetic response. <laughs> now, why do we give them that kind of response? Because we're focused on what? Earthly things. We're self-absorbed again. Rather than if we were focused on heavenly things, as the scriptures command us to be, then when people say, how are you? You say what? Thankful. You say what? Thankful. Oh, beautiful. Yeah. I mean, that's my common response. I am thankful. People say, how are you? I say, I'm thankful. I'm thankful. Now, people who know me and have been around me for long enough, you know, even non-Christians, they say, oh, yeah, 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 I know you're thankful. <laughs> Drive them crazy. I'm thankful. But no one is ever, people who don't, don't know me and have never encountered me, they say, hey, how are you today? I said, well, I'm thankful. They go, thankful? Thankful? I've never heard that before. <laughs> Tell me, what are you thankful about? There's a, there's, a, there's a door you could drive a Mack truck through. I say, what am I thankful for? I'm saved. They say, are you one of them born again nuts? I said, yeah, aren't you? You're not? What's the matter? Hasn't anybody told you? Don't you want all your sins forgiven? Do you want to be saved? Do you want to know that when you die, you have the assurance of going to heaven, you'll be with God forever, you get a brand new body? Doesn't that sound great? And I walk away. No, I don't really. What, what am I suggesting? It's attitude, isn't it? It's how we perceive the lost and how the lost perceive us. Two internal issues. You're not prepared to live life until you're providing a strong prayer base in your life and as well you're, you're sensitive to your attitude. Is the cup half empty or is it half full? Half full. For us, it's more than half full, isn't it? It's overflowing, isn't it? <laughs> And the more we realize that, the more we realize what God has for us and what He has done for us, our cup is overflowing. 
We're not prepared to live life unless we deal with those two inside issues. And we're certainly not prepared to, to reach out to people and be effective in our outreach, either individually or corporately, unless we deal with those issues. Significant, vital. That leads me to my next point. Effective outreach is most successful when built upon relationships. Most successful when built upon relationships. Now, there's, there's varying degrees of success. There's different mechanisms for outreach, and all of them have varying degrees of success. But relationships are the most fruitful. Somebody said, you never know who you touch until you touch who you know. Isn't that interesting? You really never know who you're going to touch until you touch who you know. That means that you don't know what God's going to do through that person's life, who you already know. He's already put you in proximity to as you touch their life and you make an influence and a difference in their life, how he's going to use that person. My sister, Michelle, is a classic example. I witnessed to her and witnessed to her. And then one day, all of a sudden, over the telephone, she was ready. God had prepared her heart. He'd arranged circumstances. She was ready. And we prayed together on the phone to receive Jesus. It was the most precious moment. One of those moments in your life that you'll never, ever forget. I had no idea. And she's going to get the tape. And she's going to cry when she hears this. I can't tell you how proud I am of my sister. I would have never known, never understood how God would use her. And, and she is on fire for Jesus. She loves Jesus with all her heart. And she is all by herself. She started to gather around young women, young single women, to begin to disciple them and work with them and talk with them and pray with them, encourage them, teach them. She has a little flock. She's a little pastorette. <laughs> she's going to hear this on the tape and she's going to call me up and say, Zachary. <laughs> Oh, it's such a delight when family, when family comes to know Jesus. People who are so special to us. And we can touch their life. And then you begin to see how God uses them. People who led me to Christ, dear friends, they had no, no idea what God would do with my life when they introduced me to Jesus Christ. I had no idea. See, you never know who you touch until you begin to touch who you know. Now, I've given you some statistics. I want to share these statistics with you quickly to underscore this point of relationship. These are ways that people come to Christ. Now, there are many ways, but these are the general categories. And I just want to give you the percentages and how effective they are. On the top of our list, we have evangelistic crusades, and especially those on television. You know evangelistic crusades. And lots of money, lots of effort, lots of energy is put into these crusades. 1% of people come to Christ through these crusades. With all the effort, 1% return on investment. The second category is church visitation programs. This is, this is churches mobilize their congregations to go out and visit the, visit the neighborhood, visit the communities, visit, 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 visit. 2% of people come to Christ through door-to-door -door visitation. 2%. A lot of effort, a lot of time, a lot of energy, a lot of resource. Not a very good return on investment. That's why we don't do that. We don't do evangelistic crusades. Church programs. Church programs are designed to what? Equip. Right? There's some winning component to them, but largely they're designed to equip the already converted. But they produce a 4% return on investment in terms of numbers of people coming to Christ, 4%. Sunday school, 4%. Now, we don't do a traditional Sunday school. If you come from a Baptist church, you know what Sunday school is all about. We have Sunday school throughout the week. This, this place is going nearly 24 hours a day, and uh, we don't have the capacity to do Sunday school on a Sunday morning, so we spread it out throughout the week and on the weekends. But that leaves a 4% yield. Walk-ins, this will kill you, 5%. People just walking in, no special program. People just walk in. 5% of people get saved just by walking into a church. The pastor, 8%. The pastor has such an effect that 8% of people have come to Christ through the pastor. But here is the real key. Here's the one I want you to focus on. 
Friends and relatives, relationships, 76%. 76% of people come to Christ through personal relationships, one-on-one. Now let me take a little sidelight here, a little tangent. Some of you get mad at me because I don't do altar calls. You know why I don't do altar calls? You compare 8% to 76%. Where's the greater return? I try to be sensitive to the leading of the Spirit. When the Spirit says, do an altar call, I'll do one. But I get letters, and some of you come and talk to me face-to-face. You say, you should do more altar calls. I said, you do the altar call. It's your friend. Your relative. You love them. You do the altar call. You lean over to them and say, what do you think? Want to ask Jesus? You know? Don't wait on me. You have a long wait. I only bring an 8% return on investment. You're much better off doing it yourself. Dig? Relationships bring people and relationships keep people. Let me say that again. Relationships bring people and relationships keep people. The vast majority of you are here because of some relationship. Somebody brought you. Somebody talked to you. Somebody introduced you. Somebody stayed with you in the process. Let me give you some quick statistics from the Gallup poll to give you some insight into this and how vast the harvest is. One in five Americans, George Gallup did this poll a few years ago, one in five Americans, 18 years or older, identifies him or herself as an evangelical, a person who believes in the evangel, the gospel. One in five, 20% of people. Eight out of 10 Americans say they believe that Jesus Christ is God or the Son of God. Isn't that an amazing statistic? Is the harvest ripe? Is it ready? Is it, is it plentiful? Four out of five want their children to have some kind of religious training. Whoo, my gosh. 40 million adult Americans say their conversion experience included asking Jesus to be their personal savior. 40 million. Where are the rest of them? Half of the nation's 61 million unchurched say they might be persuaded to become involved in a church if invited. Oh, my. I mean, does, don't the statistics say it, don't they? They give us some significant perspective. Now, that leads me to my fifth strategy. Effective outreach includes many, not a few. Now, in your notes, the, the, there's a typo there. The two blanks are many, not a few. Now, let me describe to you what I'm talking about. We're looking and hoping and praying that everybody would be involved in outreach, not just the few. Typically, historically, in the American church, you find this. 20% of the people, at best, do 80% of the work. 20% of the people give 80% of the finances. We'd like to reverse that trend. That 80% or better of the people would be doing all the work. 80% or better would be giving all the finances. So we want to see the many involved and not the few. And if our outreach efforts are to be effective, corporately and as well individually, we need to be part of an army of people who are of one mind and one heart marching to the beat of the same drummer. Make sense? Now in this context, let me share with you quickly three things I've been learning as a pastor. They're kind of simple. The first thing is this. Despite my hopes and expectations, the reality is that most Christians do not automatically get involved in outreach. Most Christians do not automatically get involved in outreach. Just because I've been preaching on the Great Commission, on Matthew chapter 9, the harvest principle, talking about this for weeks and weeks and weeks, doesn't necessarily mean that everybody's going to become involved and excited. It just doesn't happen. Do you know the two hardest subjects to preach on? Tithing, Tithing and evangelism. Did that make itself all the way around? Oh, no, it just got to that group? That's it? All right, keep it moving. I'll keep them here a little bit longer. <laughs> I can stretch this message. No, I won't. I'm just kidding. You know why tithing and evangelism are the two most difficult things to preach on? Because they're the most significant in the life of the church. 
Those are the two places in which there's the greatest amount of resistance to spiritual warfare, tithing and evangelism. That's where people have the greatest degree of difficulty in actively participating. Do you think the devil might be in that? <laughs> Absolutely. He's going to try to wreak havoc with your finances. He's going to create fear in your heart so that you are effectively excluded from participating in great blessing of God in your life. Any Christian who begins to understand those things and they go, wake up, heaven to Christian, you know. You go, oh my gosh, that's probably the reason why I'm so struggling. So Christians don't automatically jump in. The second thing I've been learning is that evangelism and outreach, these things apply, basically, they are, they are uh, attractive, appeal only to the few, maybe 10% of the best. And they bring guilt to the rest. So there's a few people in the life of every church who say, yes, finally, finally he's preaching on evangelism. Finally, see, that's their hot button. They love evangelism. They're in evangelism. They're gifted. That's their area. And so they get all excited when the pastor preaches on evangelism. But for the whole rest of the congregation, they're going, oh, man, evangelism. Oh, I know I should go out there. They're full of guilt. Right? It's okay to admit it. It's all right. But here's the third thing. And this helps, I think. I've been learning that people will respond to outreach ministry, to outreach efforts. The many will become involved. If they can have a place where they can contribute, they can contribute and feel comfortable at the same time. Now let me describe to you what I'm talking about. Two criteria. High grace, low risk. If you could do something in terms of effective outreach that would be of low risk to you, low risk means it's not going to create any stress in your life, not going to create any guilt in your life, low risk, but is chances are it will produce a high benefit, high grace to you and as well to the person that you're going to uh, be encountering. Would you be more more ought to uh, be involved in that outreach effort? Huh? Do you think? As opposed to a high-risk kind of a thing? Low grace? Yeah. Write those, th write those two concepts down. Low risk, high grace. Say them with me. Low risk, high grace. Say it again. Low risk, high grace. Write those two concepts down. Because that's what we're talking about. We did in this past month, we did an example of low risk, high grace. What did we do? We wrote some notes, didn't we? We wrote some notes to people. Was there a great risk to you in writing the notes? No, you could, well, except for me. I was standing over you, right. <laughs> but you wrote some notes, some encouraging notes and, and love notes and so forth, blessings to people. And you were expressing what? High grace. And more than not, those, those notes were received with, with grace. They were, oh, this is nice. This is wonderful. And there was no risk on the part of the person to receive the note. It was just a note. It was, ah, oh, I just want you to know. Thinking about you. Praying for you. Hope your day is good. Bless you. So we experimented that with all this past month. And, and just everybody could be involved. Everybody could be involved. Did you feel good about being involved? Yeah. Was it a good thing generally? Of course it was. Absolutely. Now let me tell you about another instance. These guys are yelling at me over here. They want you to know about this other one. A month ago, we did, I think I told you about this, we, a couple of our mini churches got together on a Saturday afternoon for a couple of hours. They had a car wash out in front of our church. It was free. It was a free car wash. They put a sign out there that said, free car wash. Now, they told me they washed about 60 or 70 cars. They weren't sure about the exact number, but it seemed certainly like that number. They went over to Lucky's, and all the employees of Lucky's brought their cars over and got them washed for free. <laughs> But here was something that they all could do, wash cars. People came in off the street. They couldn't believe. It's a free car. Free. And you're a church? Free? What's the gimmick? What's it, what do we have to join? What do we, what's the, the thing we have to pay? We, no, it's free. Absolutely free. No kidding. It's free. 
They say, why are you doing this? That was a common refrain. They would say, we want to show you the love of Jesus. Jesus washed feet, we wash cars. (laughs) Apropos, in our technological society, yeah, he washed feet, we wash cars. Blew them away. They couldn't believe it. Something for free at a church? (laughs) Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Romans chapter 2, verse 4. It's actually the second part. It's, 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 it's the, half, the last half of the verse. Paul says a very intriguing thing. He says, God's kindness leads you towards repentance. God's what? His kindness leads you towards repentance. His kindness. So what am I suggesting? I'm suggesting that random acts of kindness can... In- impact somebody's life and open a door in their life to bring them to repentance. Now what if you continued being kind to somebody? How many of you like it when someone is kind to you? They do kind things to you or for you? Raise your hand. You like kindness exhibited towards you. Now if you like it exhibited towards you, don't you think that other people in your life would like kindness exhibited toward them? Can we do acts of kindness? Absolutely. Absolutely. Everybody can do that. Everybody can be kind. Everybody can do... uh, There's a book I want to recommend. It's a book of the month. It's called Conspiracy of Kindness. Conspiracy of Kindness. It's our book of the month. You get it in the bookstore. Get it and read it. It's the story of a pastor in Cincinnati who seven or eight years ago discovered this. They tried all these evangelistic efforts. They'd been... They'd run the gamut on all their efforts. And all of a sudden it dawned on him because he read the same passage in Romans chapter 2, verse 4. And he said, kindness. What would happen if we started showing kindness to people? So he began to introduce this concept to his congregation. And they just took to it like wildfire. People want to serve, but they're scared to death. They feel ill-equipped. Well, what can we do? What do we got to work with? Who's got some fishes and loaves we can start with and God can multiply, right? So he, he began to experiment. And they, they did free car washes. They did also, his book catalogs a whole bunch of suggestions. It's, they, they've got it re- pretty well refined. It's really fascinating. But they, they got a number of people in their church over the Christmas holidays. They, they worked with a local mall, and they went in the mall. The mall bought all the wrap and stuff, and they said, we'll provide all the labor through the whole holiday season. We'll gift wrap free everybody's, everybody's uh, gifts. Was that a service? Oh, man. People were just, people were lining up. They said, who are you people? Why are you doing this? What, what's this all about? And there was no, you didn't have to invite them to church. You didn't have to tell You just say, we just, we just want to share the love of God. We're just here to serve you. Want to wrap your presents. Have a blessed Christmas season. Wow. People were blown away. And people, and, and then, they, then they began to discover they had to have other people alongside because people were wanting to pray. People were wanting, wanting to get saved. People, God was doing things, and so they had to have people there to pray with people while they were wrapping their packages. <laughs> Miracles were happening in the mall. That sounds like a good title for a book, doesn't it? Miracles in the mall. Good title for a sermon. Think about this. Think about this for a minute. When was the last time you went over and washed your neighbor's car for him? You just did it. You just went over and washed their car. You wanted to bless them. When was the last time you did it? How long would it take? Half hour? When was the last time you went over and mowed your neighbor's lawn? When was the last time? When was the last time you went over and cleaned your neighbor's bathroom? I know, I know. Don't get carried away. I know. That's what he said in the book. He said, you know what? We mobilized people in our congregation and we went in our business district. We went down through the whole business after business after business. We went and we said, we had a little bucket and little mops and sponges and stuff. He says, we want to clean your restroom. They said, what? I want to clean your restroom for you. Why? We want to just serve you. We want to show you the love of God. Some people threw them out. Other people said, yeah, do it. People got saved. Acts of kindness. Take a roll of quarters, 10 bucks, roll of quarters. Go sit in the laundromat for a couple hours on a Saturday afternoon. People come in and do their laundry, you go over to the washing machine, you put the quarter in for them. 
Do you have to blow some minds? <laughs> See, little act, anybody can do these things. The list is endless. Acts of kindness. So we have a mechanism whereby more, 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 more people can be involved in effective outreach, not just a few. Make sense? The last effective outreach involves making disciples, not just making decisions. Effective outreach involves making disciples, not just making decisions. Beloved, there is no success in the Lord's work without successors. It's up to you and me. It's up to us. Are we going to make disciples or are we going to make dropouts? You don't just pray with somebody and then bring and leave them at the, on the doorstep of the church. They'll die. They'll drop out. We make disciples. We pray with them, and then we begin to lead them in steps of righteousness. You say, but, but I'm not sure what to do. I'm not sure how to make a disciple. They don't know that you don't know. <laughs> you just act like you know. You say, come with me. Come and see. Follow me as I follow. Amen. They'll follow. If I tell you to stand up, what are you going to do? If I tell you to sit down, what are you going to do? That's right. People follow you. You just tell them, do this. Come with me. Oh, okay. <laughs> they don't know that you're not sure. It's on-the-job training making disciples. I didn't know how to make disciples. I had to learn as I went. I made mistakes, but I did know that this church offered enough things that I could bring people. I could bring people, and somehow we would both get discipled at the same time. Here's the secret. When you bring someone to Christ and you're going to disciple them, you don't say, I'll meet you at church. You say, I'll get you, I'll bring you. If you say and you let them say, I'll meet you, you have an 80% no-show rate. All of you have experienced that. If you say, I'll come get you, and they say, no, 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 that's all right. No, I'm coming. I love you enough. I'm going to drive over to your house and get you. I care enough about you. I want to serve you. You'll have an 80% show rate. What would happen if, if every member of this church, every person who calls Hope Chapel their church, every Christian in this church, what would happen if each person, each one of us, led one person to Christ, and for one year committed our life to disciple that one single person. What would happen? What would happen? We'd need a bigger parking lot, that's right. You think God would supply it? We can all do acts of kindness, can't we? We can all along the way win somebody and then begin to, to lead them. You don't know where to bring them? Bring them Wednesday night. My class starts Wednesday night here, 7 o'clock. Four weeks. Just sit with them. Learn with them. But you bring them. Then bring them back on Sunday morning or Saturday night or Sunday night or Monday night, Tuesday night. I don't know. Take them to your mini church. For one year, you be with them. You be with them. You lead them. You be with them. And in so doing, you'll be discipling them. And then you know what? When it comes time for you to release them and them to disciple somebody else, what are they going to do? They're going to do what you did. They're going to remember, oh yeah, they came and got me. Oh, I'll, I'll come and get you. This is how it happens. We just pass it on. We make successors. We don't make dropouts. We make disciples. Pray with me. Lord, help us in this great, awesome task to see, Lord, to see the harvest, that it is plentiful, and that our hearts would be such that our outreach would be effective. Lord, that these internal issues, our character, fear would not inhibit us. Lord, even that we would look around and see who you brought into our life and that we could begin to touch those people for your sake. Lord, show us those little acts of kindness that we can step out of our way to do. Don't cost us much. But just consistently acts of kindness leads people towards repentance. Creates an environment, creates an atmosphere, Lord, where they will want to come into your kingdom.
more permeable, more open, more willing. Lord, show us these things and make them real for us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, who wants to dance on streets of gold? Yeah. Well, let's stand and let's think about it, okay?